everyone, and welcome to Sample Size. The only news podcast that cares about science. I'm your host, Samantha Spears. And I'm your co-host, Cameron Boozard-Jamary. So, what you got for me today, Sam? All right, Cameron. Did you hear about the two COVID-19 studies that were recently pulled from pretty prominent medical journals? That was a wild way to introduce something I absolutely certain I have no context for. So, yeah, obviously <laughs> I did not hear. Like, I feel like they're publishing stuff all the time. What's What are these two specific ones? All right. You're in for a treat. So, as I said, recently there were two studies that were returned. Attracted. That happened on June 4th. That was due to them using flawed data. All right. So let's start with the first thing. Retracted means they like published it and then took it back, right? Correct. They were published in journals and then they had to be removed from the journals and the journals saying, oh, sorry, we shouldn't have published these. These are actually bad. All right. I'm following you. So why were they retracted? What was wrong with this data? So what was wrong with this data is that this data was from a company called Surgisphere and they They claim to have a medical database of a whole bunch of electronic medical records from many hospitals across the world, like at least in six different countries. And all of this information was supposed to have been information on COVID-19 patients and patients that had the coronavirus. Well, when other researchers started digging into their findings a little more and digging into the data a little more, they discovered some inaccuracies and makes you think that the whole database is actually false. Wow. So this is, okay. First of all, why Surgisphere? Like why do all these big companies have like such wacky names like Palantir and (laughs) wait, this is like a data company, right? Yeah. So the Guardian did a little bit of investigation into this company. Just a little bit. Yeah. Just, you know, a tiny bit. One reporter who was like there after they went to a Burger King, but before they went to their next interview, I was like, I got time to interview Surgisphere and just walk over to their building or something. I know. And so what the Guardian found is that first First, it was established in 2008 by Sapan Deze, I think I have said that right, who was a co-author on all of these studies. Sapan, you listen to this podcast. Let us know if we mispronounce that. <laughs> all right. And this company was established first as a medical education company that published textbooks. And it only started promoting their medical records database in 2019. So this company seemed to have like popped out of nowhere as, you know, coronavirus was becoming a big pandemic. Hold on. This is like McGraw. Hill suddenly decided to get into the big data industry. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. We're, okay. I'm already hating this start. Let's keep going. Yeah. Let me tell you some other things that The Guardian found out about this company. So first, several of the 11 employees had little scientific background. For example, their science editor seems to be a sci-fi writer and fantasy artist, according to their LinkedIn profile. And the company had very little online presence. It had less than 170 Twitter followers and zero posts between October 2017 and March 2020. Oh, you're going to love this one, Cameron. The Get In Touch link on their website would redirect to a WordPress template for cryptocurrency. Oh my God. (laughs) Every word in that sentence just hurt to hear. First of all, no, there's no first of all. Ugh, ugh. Okay, I don't even want to talk about this. Keep going, just keep going. All right, and the CEO, Deze, he has been named in three medical malpractice suits and launched an Indiegogo campaign in 2008 for a wearable human augmentation device that never seemed to have been made. <laughs> oh my god. I feel like this is, I don't know why I like want to work at this company. It just seems like the most incredible motley crew of terrible, just like nothing about this place makes any sense. How do they even claim to be what they are? Yeah, like you should look it up. There's been more stuff that have come out about the guy who's like running this company.
company. And it just it just sounds wild. It keeps sounding wilder, like the stuff you would do. And I don't know, is a doctor, but it's just kind of like one of those weird doctors that just says says stuff random. Anyway. Okay, so I think we should focus on the like one thing we actually like to talk about on this podcast, which is the data, I guess. <laughs> you know, so what's going on here? All right. Well, first, let's backtrack and talk about. So what were these studies that actually got pulled? Okay. Like, what was this about? So the first study published in May in the medical journal Lancet found that the anti-malarial drug hydroxychloroquine was ineffective against curing COVID-19 and that its use was associated with a higher risk of death and heart complications in COVID-19 patients. So that's the stuff that Donald Trump has actively touted on the news several times now. Yes, I thought you'd remember that. Yes, hydroxychloroquine is the drug that President Donald Trump has been saying is like a cure-all for COVID-19. And I want to be clear, other people have also warned against this drug, and there's been other studies saying that there's high risks of death associated with it, especially if not used in the correct circumstances. But this study was a big deal because after it got published, the World Health Organization and other research institutions paused their human trials on the drug. Really? Yeah. So, like, people were taking this. I mean, isn't the Lancet? As far as I know, I don't know a lot about medical journals, but I always hear the Lancet and, like, NPR stories or in Vox Media refers to them. Lots of different. They're pretty reputable journals. So if it's there, people are probably taking it pretty seriously. Yeah, they are one of the big top journals, medical journals. And we should probably do an entire separate episode about how medical journals get totally blown up proportion when it comes to the news. But that's for another time. (laughs) What was the next part? And so as I was saying, because of this study, those human trials got paused. And actually now since that study has been retracted, those human trials have been restarted to see if hydroxychloroquine actually is effective or not. That's kind of difficult, right? You can't just restart it because now you have this weird gap in performance. So now you basically have to start from scratch if you're doing those kinds of trials. Yeah, kind of. It's, yeah. Man, bad information hurts a lot of people. All right. All right. So let's move on to the second study that was retracted. And this one was published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And it had concluded that taking certain blood pressure drugs, like ACE inhibitors, didn't appear to increase the risk of death among COVID-19 patients, as other researchers had suggested. So that one was also a big deal because it conflicted with previous information that had been out there. So it was saying that those did help or didn't help? It was saying that certain blood pressure drugs didn't appear to increase the risk of death. So basically, having certain blood pressure drugs wasn't a huge deal with COVID-19. But it turned out that, you know, it was. But other research has suggested it is kind of a a big deal. Okay. And so I'm still curious. So how did they get involved with this? They have all this medical data. And so they were just, I guess, looking at correlation within their own data? Yeah. So the company claimed, as I said, they're claimed to be a health data analytics company and claimed to have a database of electronic medical records from about 12,000 hospitals across six continents. So they claim to have a whole bunch of information and a huge database of info so that you could study the data and actually look at what things are associated among COVID-19 patients and what things seem to be helping, what things seem to not be helping, stuff like that. Okay. And so, I mean, this is kind of the point of big data. If you have enough data, you should eventually be able to figure out patterns in anything. Exactly. Yeah. But the problem with this data is that, as I mentioned at the very top, when people started looking closely at the data, they were noticing some problems. So first, the Guardian Australia found that the number of deaths reported in the hydroxychloroquine study was larger than it was in Australia at the time. (laughs) 
<laughs> wow. Like total deaths from hydroxychloroquine or just like total deaths, period? No, just total COVID-19 deaths in Australia. The oh number was God. off. Oh, wow. That's a big number to be off by. That's yeah. a pretty big indicator, actually. Yeah. And that same paper, they contacted several large hospitals in Australia that would have had to have been in this database in order for them to have all this information. Mm-hmm. And those hospitals had never heard of the company before. Really? Mm-hmm. This is, oh my God, this is becoming a data science story about like the onward transfer of data. This is the worst. I hate it. Yeah. And there were other numerous inconsistencies. Like I remember reading about there was a thing that the database claimed there were some areas in Africa that patients were using hydroxychloroquine at the time. But the other researchers are going, that's not even possible because this drug isn't even in that area. Like no one was even talking about at the time. So why would they be using it? It was it was just some weird red flags that people were finding. And so because people were finding this, there actually was it was a letter that like more than 180 scientists signed basically saying, hey, we found all these inconsistencies and we demand some answers. Yeah, this is I mean, this is a big part of the scientific community in general is just the need for truthfulness and your reputation. And if you can't back up what you're saying, it's pretty easy for people to discount whatever your claims are. Mm -hmm. So you're probably wondering, like, how did all this happen in the first place? Like, how did it get so far that these studies got put in these really prominent journals? Yeah. All right. So one big reason why this happened is because the lead author on both papers was a man named Mandeep Mehra. He is, oh, I hope I pronounce that correctly. Mandeep, you listen to the podcast. Let us know. (laughs) And he is a renowned Harvard professor that's known for cardiovascular medicine and heart transplants and has published over 200 papers. So having him as the lead author really fast-tracked these papers and gave it like the recognition of, oh, these are good studies. Yeah, but that's one of those things where like, I know in the scientific community, you don't actually have to have been that involved with a paper to be on the paper. So when they say they published it, I wonder how many of them was him actively involved or how many of them were just, he happened to have some contribution. Well, and a little insight into how scientific papers work, because I've done them before, is that normally to be the first author, you have to have done the most work. So he's the first author on over 200 stuff, 200 publications. No, well, he has done over 200. He's been an an author in over 200 publications. But I'm saying these two papers in particular, he was the lead author on. Wow. So it made it seem like he did a lot of work contributing to this. But when people have interviewed him and talked to him, he didn't even actually see any of the raw data on it. So he was involved, but he hadn't actually done any underlying work is what I'm hearing. Yeah, pretty much. (laughs) Not a great look. Okay. Yeah, but by him being a lead author, that really signaled to a lot of these journals like, oh, this is a big deal. This has to be a good study. And another reason why these studies got published is because none of the reviewers actually saw any of the data behind these findings. You mean the reviewers of the actual journals? Correct. Yeah. So let me just give a little bit of background of how journal publications work. So I talked about authors. So when you look at a publication in a journal, where the author is positioned in the author list matters, and it gives insight into how much work they did on something. Mm -hmm. So the first author listed tends to be the person who did the most work and the most writing, followed by like the second and third or whatever. And then normally the person who funds the study or is like the project manager of it, they're usually the last person listed. So you can kind of go through any kind of study or paper. You can go through and look at the names and see right away like, oh, who contributed what? Who did what? You can get a good sense of what everyone's work was. So whenever you publish a paper in a journal, what you do 
do is you write up your paper first according to the journal's rules. They're usually on the website of a journal. They have like saying, oh, what kind of sections we want included and different formatting procedures. Yeah, sometimes they'll even include like a, is it LaTeX? L-A-T-E-X. I never learned how to pronounce it. LaTeX. I hate it so much. (laughs) They'll have a LaTeX or like even a Word doc template just so Mm -hmm. that you have a clear sense of like these are the things. They show up in this order. The bibliography should be formatted this way, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, yeah. They give you like a full rundown of how things should be formatted because when it gets sent to them, they don't want to be dealing with format issues. They want to be dealing with content issues. They're literally your English teacher who was like, if you don't write it exactly this way, you get a zero because I'm not dealing with that. I have too much stuff going on this weekend. All right. And so when you write up a paper, you submit it to a journal, then that paper gets given to usually like three to five reviewers. And the reviewers of these journals, what they are, are they tend to be people that are in the profession. They're in academia. They're doctors or physicians. And they're people who have volunteered to say, hey, I will be a reviewer with this journal. Like, I will get papers to review. And the journals tend to, like, know, okay, I know what specialties these reviewers are. So, you know, if this is a cardiovascular study, I'm going to send it to a bunch of people that have done cardiovascular studies before. You know, stuff like that. Yeah. Okay, so your paper gets sent to reviewers and assigned to usually three to five reviewers. And then those reviewers will look through your paper and flag anything that they think is wrong or that they have questions about. So like, oh, you did this kind of analysis, but you didn't really explain it well. Please explain it better. Or if they have questions like, oh, you seem to appear to decide to do this. Why did you do that? You know, why? What's the reason for this? And a person who wrote the paper gets these comments back and then they usually have to like defend them or make changes. So, oh, you say I should make an edit here. All right, I'll change it. Or, oh, you asked why I did this. I'm going to tell you why. And then the reviewer can judge if that's a good enough explanation or not. So the whole point of me giving you this background and summary is that most of the time in this entire process, the reviewers do not actually see any of the data that the paper is writing about and that the paper uses in its analysis. And so there has been a push in the academic community so that these journals will require people to submit their data when submitting a paper for the journal so that the reviewers can actually look at the data and see, oh, is their analysis correct? Are they doing things shady or not. Okay. So you're saying here, this is one of those examples where they're really trying to get at the underlying data and no one could really figure out how or why they came up with these conclusions for these two papers. Yeah. And reporters have talked to the journals before, like they've asked some questions. And according to the journals, they said, you know, the review process went well, there weren't many issues, like there weren't really any red flags that were raised. But, you know, it kind of makes sense there were no red flags that were raised because as the reviewer's job, they weren't really looking into thinking, oh, is this data flawed or not? So was the letter why they decided to pull this entire thing? Or was there other red flags that they might have wanted to look at along the way in addition to the fact that they couldn't get their hands on this data? Well, ultimately, these studies got pulled because there were questions being raised from the academic community and from these other scientists. And so then they decided to take a deep dive into it and look into it and found out there were some issues. But the point here is there are a lot of people questioning if the raw data should have been provided when these papers were submitted to the journals. Yeah, the rub of this entire situation is like 
protected health information, the kind of data that they're probably collecting from these hospitals is super sensitive. Like you have to do a lot of extra work to keep them protected and even anonymize them. Mm -hmm. So first of all, especially if you anonymize the data, it's that much harder to check the records. Like if you're the people who were part of the Australian Guardian who are like, yeah, we don't know who these people are, but we're pretty sure that there's no way more people have died from COVID-19 than actually died from COVID-19 as have been reported. Like they know what the actual numbers were. So if your data doesn't reflect them correctly, then there's probably a possibility that there's a disparity with the data you've been collecting and the actual truth of things. And so that's one way they were able to raise those questions, right? Yeah. But the other problem is you want to be able to release this data, but at the same time, it's often not really companies or people that are able to release this data. This data is collected sometimes for proprietary reasons, like they want to use the data for their new fancy gizmo that by giving it out, they're in a way shooting themselves in the foot. It could be considered a trade secret or a special way that they're collecting the data, or it can just undermine the privacy of the individuals who are involved. Yes, exactly. And I have personally published a paper before where the journal I was publishing in was saying they encourage people to give their raw data to reviewers, but we just told them, well, no, we can't do that yet because it's not publicly available yet, and it will be in this many years. And so that's exactly right. These concerns are valid that that's kind of what's happening when if you're requesting people to give their raw data is that, well, that's not always practical because you have a bunch of privacy concerns related to that. Yeah. And I mean, the pain is felt both ways, right? On the Mm -hmm. one hand, we give out the data and you could eventually undermine the privacy of someone. On the other hand, you have these studies that are fictitious or I guess just false. But as a result, they're causing a negative impact on other research that right now we really need. Yeah. And and I think that's the larger issue here is because this isn't a pandemic, because this is something that we desperately need information on, there probably wasn't as rigid of a review process as there should have been, you know, and really giving the reviewers the benefit of the doubt. Like, it's not really a reviewer's job to double check if the total number of deaths reported in a paper matches the total number of deaths available in this other data set. Like, that's not really a person's job when they're reviewing these papers. It's really just looking at, oh, do these statistical procedures make sense in this context. Like, you're really putting a lot of trust in the person who's submitting the paper that what they're submitting is truthful. Yeah. And I mean, this also introduces a completely separate topic that's probably for another episode about replication studies, your mm-hmm. ability to take existing data that's been made public or just even a existing hypothesis and be able to reproduce it under the same conditions in a different setting. That is fundamental to science, but much like most politicians don't like to fix a road, is much more snazzy to build a new one. It's not the same when it comes to these kinds of studies. It's hard for people to justify reproducing a study, even though I think there's a big shift that direction. But that's a conversation for another time. Well, no, I think that is a good conversation to have. Like when researching this, I was reading a lot of arguments about, oh, the raw data needs to be given whenever you submit a paper to a journal. That's not always feasible. And also, even if it was submitted, reviewers just don't have the time, energy, and it's not in their job description to go and recreate the analysis. Yeah, like the journal's a hefty piece of text. There's not mm-hmm. just one paper they're reviewing. They're probably reviewing several, if not most, of the papers that they have to do with their specific specialty. Yeah, and have their own jobs they're doing because these are normally people just volunteering time. But going back to replication studies, I think that's a much more worthwhile answer to this issue is that there is a focus on papers that are published in journals or things that are very innovative and new and give new understanding to the field. But the problem is that you 
usually comes at the cost of people not verifying their work and double checking that things that maybe you'll see in one circumstance or study popped out as, oh, this specific thing is, you know, related to this disease or outcome. Well, that could have just been a fluke in that particular study, but we don't really know because there aren't people trying to recreate that study. Okay. So I guess you're saying the takeaway from all this is just we need to be more conscious about not just what we publish, but being able to go back and double check it. Yeah, I think that's a good summary. And also just kind of give props to these external scientists and these reporters who did the work and researched into this to figure out that something was fishy and wrong. And I think that's what you as a reader, like just you, listener, I'm talking to you. Whenever you read a paper or a study or read a news headline, you know, take a little bit of the time and understanding to kind of dig deeper and figure out if that's actually true, if that's actually not, could there be other things going on? And I really hope that's what we're doing with this podcast is really (laughs) expanding upon those issues. What an excellent way to segue into the fact that if you've been enjoying this podcast, (laughs) maybe you would like to recommend it to a friend so that they could know about these two terrible studies that were published and have questionable, questionable sources. Sam, where can people find us? Where can people, more importantly, find your sources so they can know that the stuff we talked about is legit? You can find all my sources in the show notes. And if you want to know more about us, you can find us on social media at Sample Size Show and can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. And please, please do, because, man, this is like my favorite thing to talk about. And, And also, if you have some sort of special study or piece of science in the news that you think would be worth talking about on the show, send it to us so that we can review it. Like Sam said, you can get in touch with us on social media and hopefully sometime soon we'll have a more prominent website that you can also submit stuff to. Till then, I've been your host, Cameron. And I've been your host, Samantha. See you next time. 